The following message is from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. More information about Life Source is available at lifesource.org.au. Okay, let's get into God's Word. I want you to open up to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. I've been doing this series that's uh, called What's God Like? And even on Father's Day, what's God like? He's a father. And um, I just want us to continue this series because I really believe that God's been given a lot of bad press. And um, there's a lot of anti-God sentiment out there. And, and it comes from, from people that make themselves out to be the good guys and God to be the, the bad guy. It's, it's quite fascinating that so many people um, have their concepts and their minds already made up and they won't listen to the other side of the story. And so they've already made up their mind. God's a bad God. God's a dictator. God is unreasonable. And, um, and, and consequently, they're attacking especially Christians whose faith is not that solid. And so one of the things that really concerns me is what happens to young people when they enter into university. Because if there is ever an attack, it's right in those first few years of university. And uh, have you found that? There's, um, there's an attack. It's like, you're a Christian? What, you believe in God? You must be an idiot. You can't be smart. You can't be intelligent. Because if you were smart and intelligent, you'd sort of discard that because God is unreasonable. And for you to believe in God, you have to be an unreasonable unthinking person. Well, today, I want to show you that God is reasonable. And not only is he reasonable, but he actually invites us to reason with him, to discuss the matters with him. So let's, let's have a read in uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Here it is. Come now. This is what the Lord says. Let us reason together. Let's have a discussion. Let's, let's have a conversation. And then it moves on. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be as wool. But I want to focus just on those first few words of what God's like. God says, come now. Let's reason together. Let's talk. Let's have a discussion. I, I think that this is a very important thought to keep in mind that God is not a dictator. He's not in a position where he says, no questions will be considered. No thoughts outside of my thoughts will be discussed. God says, come on, put your thoughts on the table. Let's have a discussion. Let's reason together. This doesn't have to be a one-sided conversation. And yet, God has been prejudged as someone who points the finger and tells you what you must believe. And this scripture, what it says is, God says, it's okay to be where you are on the journey. Just don't park there. Don't stay there. And so my, my encouragement to you is this. When you have a discussion, be open to the other side of the discussion. Amen? When, when, when you come into conversation, can you listen to the other side of the conversation or have you already prejudged it? 
And that when you come into a conversation, have you already come with your mind made up and your attitude is, don't bother me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Because that's what this scripture is all about. Let us reason together. Let's talk through. Let me show you some, some conversation that God had with people to just give you an insight that God is reasonable. I love the conversation that Abraham had with God. It's found in Genesis 18, 23. This is a fascinating insight into the God who was reasonable. And, and you know the story, the, um, the, the angel of the Lord had um, already predetermined that judgment was coming to Sodom and Gomorrah and decided, I'm going to have a conversation with Abraham and tell him what I'm going to do. And so what happens in the conversation is that Abraham starts to debate and he starts to debate with God about, come on, are you going to destroy the righteous amongst the wicked? And God's response is this, I'll never destroy the righteous amongst the wicked. Now there's, 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 there's a, something for you to grab hold of that when judgment comes, God will never judge the righteous in the same ballpark as the unrighteous. And so Abraham says, okay, if you're not going to do that, what if there's 50 righteous people in the area? Would, would you save the city for 50? Then God says, this, this is the discussion. You know what? If I find 50 righteous people in that city, I'll save the whole city. I won't destroy the whole city for 50 people. Wow. So, so, so Abraham says, wow, that's great. And so then he starts thinking again because now he's feeling comfortable with the fact that he can reason with God. He's got a conversation happening here with God. Then he goes, okay, um, pardon me for being you know, so obtuse. Pardon me for, for being so bold. But can I ask another question? What if there's five less? What if there's 45? God says, actually, even for 45, I won't destroy the city. So we've got a conversation happening here. We've got a reasonable God. Not, I will. It's like, yeah, for sure. Thank you for asking that. That's awesome. Then, then Abraham now builds a lot of courage. He says, what about 40? And God says, even for 40. And he's thinking about, mate, mate, you know, I'm, I'm on a roll here. I'm really bargaining well here. So then he comes back and he says, what about 30? <laughs> God says, even for 30. Now he's really courageous and he comes back, what about 20? <laughs> and I mean, he's thinking he's the bargain king here. He's really bargaining with, and God says, not even for 20. Then he comes back with his final offer. He says, what about 10? And God says, I will save the city if there's 10 righteous people. Now, you know, all I'm trying to say here is this, is that God is reasonable. That God's actually willing to enter into discussion rather than no discussion will be entered into. And sometimes we've already drawn the conclusion that you can't have a discussion with God. And yet God is reasonable. He invites you to have a discussion. He always wins at the end. But he takes you on a journey. And the journey is a journey of kindness. My goodness, Jonah is another one. I tell you, Jonah of all the prophets, I reckon Jonah is not my favorite prophet of all the prophets. He was the one that probably had one of the best revelations of God yet lived 
without having a revelation from God. Because you know the story of Jonah. God told him, go and tell Nineveh that judgment is coming. And, and, and then when he does what God tells him to do, God saves the city. And, and then what happens is that chapter 4 is all about the reasonable God. Just the whole thing of chapter 4, even from, from verse 1, you see Jonah being displeased that God actually saved the city. You know, God says, go, go and preach to this city. Maybe they'll turn away. And, and he preached to the city. They got saved. And God says, okay, I'll, I'll save the city. And then chapter 4, verse 1 says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. What a bad preacher. How many of you know that if you're a good preacher and you get that sort of results, you're doing wheelies in the car park. You're going, woo, but not him. He got angry that all these people got saved. And so, and so God turns up and, uh, and, you know, so he prayed to the Lord and he says, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know. Get hold of this, what, what, what jo- Jonah knew, but he couldn't live. I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. What insight did he have on God? And how badly was the way that he lived life with that sort of insight? And so then, then what happens is that God wants to teach him a lesson, just to continue the discussion. And so he, he uh, causes a tree to grow, and, and, then, and then the tree gets destroyed. And again, Jonah is upset with God, and um, really upset. Then God turns up and he says, hey, what's going on, man? Why are you so upset? Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he says, it is right for me to be angry even to death. <sighs> and he's, I mean, yeah, some of you would think, well, that's it. That's when lightning comes from heaven and strikes the guy dead. But this is the reasonable God. He's trying to talk. He's trying to reason. He's trying to direct us when, when our direction is wrong. And the Lord says, you have had pity on the plant for which you had not labored nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And what we see here is the reasonable God, the God that takes people on a journey of discovery. Friends, there's a journey of discovery. And, and, and I mean, the, how many of you remember the story in, in John chapter 4 where Jesus has this, the discussion with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well? John chapter 4, one, one of the greatest discourses in the Bible that shows us a reasonable God. Man, she approached with prejudice. She approached with prejudice. And the prejudice of the Samaritans were well, they didn't like the Jews. They just and, and what's worse is the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. So what we have is racial tension straight away, especially from one side, not from Jesus' side, but from her side. So she, as soon as she sees the Jewish man at the well, she's already apprehensive. Then when he starts talking to her, it increases her apprehension. And so what we see then is, you know, and I don't have time to open this up, But what you see here is the journey of discovery. 
the God of reason saying, I'll meet with you where you are at and take you on a journey of discovery. And so she started with the racially prejudiced man. And with the journey of discovery, she said, you must be a prophet. And then moved on to, not only are you the prophet, you must be the Messiah. And it was, it was this journey of discovery. And I love that. And so often we, we kind of want people to be on this part of the journey right up the other end when God says, I'm happy with you where you're up in your journey. And let's have a discussion to move you forward. Friends, can I just say to you, in your approach to people, make sure that you appreciate where they are in their journey, not judge them for being on their journey, love them where they're at in their journey, and then keep taking them forward. Can I just um, move into what I want to say next, which is answering some unreasonable God accusations. This is probably... Of all the accusations against God, this is probably the big one. This is the one that you've all heard a million times. This is the one that you'll hear at uni. This is the one you'll hear everywhere. And, and I want to I answer. Are you keen if I answer this one? It's the big one. He's the big one. If God is so powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? How many of you heard that one? Yeah, that's the big one. If God is so powerful and it becomes the big stumbling stone. And today I just want to address it. Are you keen if I, if I address it? Okay. Here it is. Are you ready for this? It's going to knock you out of the water. The answer to that question is because we have been placed in a position to alleviate suffering in the world. It's our season to do something about it. God's season will come. Okay, understand this. God's season will come. And in Revelation 21 verse 4, it actually notes when God's season comes, then he will wipe away every tear from everybody's eyes. And then he declares at that stage, there will be no more death. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more tears, there'll be no more pain. That's his season. It's coming. He will alleviate all the suffering, but not yet. So what season are we in? We're in the season where God says, I'm giving you the responsibility to alleviate suffering. How are you doing with that? Well, there's a lot of suffering and, and, and it's your responsibility. God says, no, I've put you on this planet And I've resourced you. Everybody say resourced you. God's resourced us to make a difference. And what happens is this, is that we get so busy living our own lives that we become oblivious to a suffering world and then blame shift and and begin to say, what's everybody else doing about this? And God says, what are you doing about this? Why why, why, why is there so much suffering in the world? It's God's fault. It's government's fault. And God says, maybe it's your fault. Maybe you need to do something about it. You You know what I find fascinating is this. As Christians... We, we all know the responsibility of individual disciples. 
And so in, in, in Matthew 28, it says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. So we, we, we see that as the primary task. But in Matthew 25, there's also another primary responsibility. And, and God puts this not just on individuals, but on whole nations. And the responsibility is about feeding the hungry, giving clean water to those that don't have clean water. It talks about giving drink to the thirsty. It, it literally talks about clean water. This is in Matthew 25. And, uh, and you can read it from verses 35 to 45 where God actually judges the nations. And the way that he judges the nations is by asking them the question, what did you do to alleviate suffering on this planet? Did you feed the hungry? Did you give clean water to the poor? Did you provide shelter for those without shelter? Did you clothe those that were naked? What did you do in this era? We're going to be held accountable. And he said, but, 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 God, but God, I don't have the resources to do that. Yes, you do. And I want to share with you something that's going to shock you. Are you ready for this? Okay. My source is Credit Suisse Global Wealth Data Book. That's my, you can check this out and Oxfam and a whole bunch of charities have actually used this research to give credibility to what I'm going to say next, which is going to shock you. Are you ready for this? Here it is. 1% of the world's population owns 99% of the world's wealth. 1% of the world's population owns 99% of the world's wealth. What does that mean? Here it is. It means 74 million people control 99% of the world's wealth and 7.3 billion people live on the 1%. You say, John, that's shocking. That is shocking. But this is the truth. And some of you say, well, well, I must be in the 1%. No, you're not. I mean, I must be in the 99%. No, get hold of this. I think just about every single person here is in the 1%. You, you are blessed beyond measure. And if, if you earn over 50000 a year, you are in the top of the 1%. Just, just because, see, this is the thing a lot of you don't realize is that if you've got food in your fridge, if you've got a house to live in, if you drive a car, if you've got money in your wallet, if you've got money in the bank, you are definitely in the 1%. And if you earn over 50000 a year, you are high in the 1%. But this is, this is the thing, are you ready for this? This is, this is the most shocking of all, that you know the 1% is 74 million people. But in that 74 million people, there are 62 individuals that own 50% of the world's wealth. 62 individuals. And I'm going to name some of these individuals uh, this morning. Huh? I, I mean, this is Forbes magazine. They do um, they, they they do the top uh, they do the top billionaires in the world. And so I've got the top ten. Here it is: Bill Gates, um, Arm. Who's heard of 
Amancio Ortega. Have you heard of this guy? He's the second. He's a, he's a, he's a Spanish guy, 79 years of age. Uh, so um, then you've got Warren Buffett, Jeff, uh, not Bozo, it's Bezos. So uh, who's heard of Amazon? Yeah, he, um, he got that going. Warren Buffet, Buffett, of course. <laughs> uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he's the youngest. On the, um, he's the youngest. He's only 32 years of age. Um, Larry Ellison, he's um, founder of Oracle. Um, Carlos Slim, a Mexican guy. Um, Telmax. Um, Michael Bloomberg. Uh, you've heard of Bloomberg uh, LP. And um, you've got the Koch brothers. And uh, number 11, who's heard of L'Oreal? Your hair colour, yeah. Lillian Betancourt, she's 93, but has a wealth of 40.1 billion. So she didn't quite make it on the top 10 with $40.1 billion. You say, well, what are you saying here? This is what I'm saying. I'm saying that so much of the suffering in the world can be alleviated, not just by the top 10, but the top 1%. 74 million people... If we can distribute some of that, even 10%. And i tell you what I find just sinister is how so many of the big corporations avoid tax. How many of them have got high-paid accountants to find ways to avoid tax? And so it's these taxes that if, if, if... was able to be put into the system, would build hospitals, would build schools, would be able to build water filtration systems. I mean, the whole world has resources. And yet, who gets the blame for it all? God does. And it's like, hello, I think it's time for somebody to start ringing the bell and say, God has resourced the planet to feed every man, woman, and child. God, what has God done? He makes plants to grow. And yet some, some, uh, some corporations are trying to actually manipulate that um, so that they can get the growth that they want and, and not allow seeds to propagate season after season. See, this is the thing that God designed is for seeds every year to propagate so that, so that once you get um, a whole bunch of seeds. And my father used to do that all the time, you know. I, I mean, one day I went into the garden, there was this huge cucumber, but it was under some 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 thin layers of grass. And I thought, look at my father. He found the best cucumber and he's keeping it for himself. And so, uh, and, and so what I did is that I approached him and I said, hey, dad, I went into the garden and I saw this huge cucumber. I said, I said you were hiding it. He says, he says, that's not to eat. I said, but it's the biggest. He says, you never eat the biggest. The biggest is next year's seed. And so, and so he understood that. And so he had in his, uh, in his shed all the seeds lined up. How many of you know now that if you try to use seeds of, of your crops, it doesn't produce because they've been so modified that you've got to go back to the buyer to buy the seeds every single year rather than finding your own. And, and, and this is humans through greed manipulating what God has created. Come on, there's just... 
you know, he's filled, he's, he's not only given us plants that grow, he's also put within plants healing properties. And, and our bodies can be healed through the resources that God has provided. He's filled the world with resources so that there's enough to clothe and shelter every individual. But somehow it's not God that stops this from happening. It's humanity. That's the reasonable God concept that we need to get into our system. Let me finish today by just giving you just a couple of thoughts about reasonable God. Okay, here it is. Because, you know... A lot of people accuse us Christians of, of you Christians, you get saved and you, and, you, and, and you put your brains into neutral. Now I say, there is nothing that makes more sense than belief in God. So, so, so let's talk it through, okay? This is a big one, your existence. So here it is, your existence, you've got two alternatives. You're either an accident or you're a creation. So you think about that. There's, what other alternatives are there? Because what's been propagated in a lot of the uni- universities is that the whole thing, the Big Bang, the universe, everything is an accident. It's just an accident. It's, it's all about you know, uh, evolution. It's all about accidents happening and mutations happening. Everything around you is an accident. Really? Really? That's the best you can come up with? That everything in this universe is an accident? And you can make sense out of that? Well, let me tell you, if everything's an accident, then nobody has purpose. But let's think for a moment that rather than everything being an accident, everything is a creation. And so all of a sudden, if everything is a creation, then humanity takes on value. Because you are a unique creation of God. Not only do you have value, but you also have purpose. If God created you, he created you with purpose and your life takes on meaning. And, and can you imagine having a kid grow up and his mindset is, I'm an accident, there's no purpose, I live, I die, there's just this little window and that's it. As opposed to getting a little kid and saying, you're a creation of God. You're unique, you're special. God created you on purpose and for purpose. Let me tell you, who has better esteem? The one that's told they're an accident or the one that's told they're a creation? What, what a ripoff to our young people being told that they're an accident as opposed to the truth, which is you're a unique creation from God. That's being reasonable. Eh? Now, for me, that makes a lot of sense. Number two, here's another reasonable God concept, and it's, it's Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. You know what Jesus said about himself? He said, um, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. I and the Father are one. You know what, what he meant by saying that? He was saying, I am God. I and the Father are one. We are one. And that's, that's the basis of Christianity, that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus claimed that he and the Father are one. In John 14 verse 6, Jesus makes another claim, and the claim that he makes is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That was a claim that Jesus made, authenticated, witnessed, listened by others. And so, so can I just make that the foundation of what I'm saying next, is that Jesus said, I am the Father of one. He claimed to be God. Not only did he claim to be God, but he claimed to be the only way to God. Okay, so if Jesus made those claims, 
then you've got two alternatives. Here it is. A, the claims are false. B, the claims are true. There's only two alternatives to those claims. They're either false or they're true. So this is, this is the confusion and this is what doesn't make sense because a lot of people say, well, Jesus was a good man. I mean, everything that Jesus taught was good. He came to this world. He made such a difference. He taught good things. Can I just say to you this, that if Jesus said, I am God, I am the only way to God, his claim was either false or it's true. And so if it's false... Okay, let's, let's, let's pursue that a little bit. If it's false, then he either knew, again, only two alternatives. He either knew that it was false or two, he didn't know it was false. So he's making claims that he's God and he knew that they were false. What does that make him? It makes him a liar. It makes him a deceiver. It makes him a hypocrite. It makes him probably the most evil person on the planet. Why is that? Because today there are 2.4 billion people that believe he's God and he's the instigator of that lie. So call him an evil man. Don't call him a good man if he knew that those claims were false and he made them. Well, the other option to his claims are false is that he didn't know that his claims were false. He actually thought that he was God, but he didn't know that they were false. What does that make him? That makes him a lunatic. That makes him a madman with, with delusions of grandeur. So what? So the whole world is following a madman. 2.4 billion people following a madman. And you say, no, well, Jesus wasn't a liar. Jesus wasn't a lunatic. Okay, so they're the only two options in that box. And there's only one box left, and that's his claims are true. Jesus was God. Jesus was the only way to God. So if that's the case, then you now also have two alternatives. And what are those? You either accept him or you reject him. There's no other alternative for you. You can't say he was a good man. You've got to say he is God and the only way to God. There's no other alternative. You either accept or you reject. And that's the reasonable God concept right there. Let me finish this morning. You've been very patient, but I want to go back to the scripture that I started with in Isaiah 1.18. Come on, let's reason together. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's put the stuff on the table. Put your thoughts on the table. Let's discuss this. I love that God is not afraid of discussion. Why is he not afraid of discussion? Because he's not afraid of the truth. He's not afraid of where the discussion will end up if we're following truth. But then that scripture doesn't finish there. Come on, let's reason together. It takes you to the next step. And this is the heart of God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Because... All God is doing is not, see, he's not just saying, I want you to believe in me. I want you to believe in me. It's, I want you to more. That's just step number one. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to enter into intimacy with you. You were created on purpose and for purpose. Not just to be a blob on this planet, but to shine 
and radiate who you are. You're a child of God. So God's inviting us into relationship. And our hearts will never be at peace until we enter into relationship with him. And this is what God is saying, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come on. He says, come on, don't don't leave the blot. Don't leave all that rubbish and stuff in your life. It's time to be cleansed, forgiven, and enter into relationship with Him. Thanks for listening to this message from Life Source Christian Church MP3 Audio Lounge. We invite you to visit us online at lifesource.org.au to find out more about our church and to also access other free resources.